chapter 1 together. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the beautiful word of God. You may be seated. Welcome to the year of our Lord, 2019. As we stand at the beginning of this new year, not knowing what this year will bring, the one immutable truth that we can cling to is that God is faithful, and He will continue to be faithful, and that He works all things together for good, for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And so the most important thing that we can do as believers as we start off 2019 is to focus our hearts and our minds upon the gospel. 
And at the heart of the gospel, the core of the gospel, is the identity of Jesus Christ. When we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, he becomes our strong anchor, the rock to which we cling, and the refuge in which we hide when the storms of life come. And so, as we start off this new year, we're going to commence a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And it is appropriate to begin the new year with Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And those are the two basic elements of the Christian faith. You have to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If you are missing one of those two elements, then something is wrong. And Hebrews is all about that. Who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is a majestic book. This is a book that is worth studying very deeply. But at the same time, this is a very complicated book. It's not an easy book to understand. And so I've, I've joked with Fanny that, that I'm starting this series with fear and trembling. Because I want to do my best to make things as clear as possible. This is not an easy book to understand. But it is a beauty, beautiful book. And it's worth our study. We must put on our thinking caps when we study Hebrews. We must pay very close attention. We must listen very closely. We must concentrate. We must focus as we study Hebrews together. If you watch some TV, you know that some TV shows, with some of them, each of the episodes is a self-contained story. And so you can miss some episodes and skip over others, and it really won't make much difference to following the show. But you will also know that there are other TV shows that are highly serialized, which means that each episode is building upon the episode before it, building up the story step by step. And so, in that case, if it's a serialized TV show, then if you miss an episode, then when you come back, you may not know what's going on. And the book of Hebrews is more like that second kind of TV show, where each chapter of Hebrews is building off of the chapter that comes before. And so if you miss a Sunday, it may be more difficult to understand what is going on the next Sunday. So I'm just warning everyone. It is my recommendation that you, for to get the most out of this ser sermon series, to do your best to come every Sunday to study this amazing book with us. We'll do our best to record the sermons, so if you can't make it one Sunday, we will try and make that available. But, but the more that we appreciate and understand this book, our faith and our Christian walk in maturity can go from here to here in one big step. This book is worth that much. 
As I said, the book of Hebrews can take your understanding of the gospel and the significance of, of Christ's death from here to here. When we wade into the book of Hebrews, we are now swimming into the deep end of the Christian faith. And so I would even recommend that to get the most out of our study of Hebrews together on Sundays, I would suggest that you study and review the chapter on your own throughout the week so that your mind is, is, is working through these problems and trying your best to understand what's going on. And if you do that, it will pay great dividends in your knowledge of God. I guarantee it. In all of the Bible, there are three books that I would say personally are the deepest and the most important books to study and know very well. Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed, and so all of Scripture is important. All of Scripture is necessary for our growth as Christians. But it is true that some books will be weightier than others. Some books will give us deeper insight into the character of God, His purpose and plan, and the gospel. And so in my humble opinion, there are three lofty mountain peaks in the New Testament. And if you know these three books well, then you will have a solid grasp of the gospel in all of its fullness. For example, if I were exiled to a desert island, and if I could only take three books of the Bible with me, they would be the Gospel of John, the Letter to the Romans, and the Book of Hebrews. And if you've been with us for a while, then you know that we have already studied the Gospel of John together. And then we moved on to the Letter of Romans. We have climbed those mountains together. And now we stand at the foot of Mount Hebrews, looking up to its lofty summit. So as we get started, let, let's ask four questions of this wonderful book. Who wrote it? What kind of book is Hebrews? Why was Hebrews written? And what is the overall theme of Hebrews? So once again, who wrote it? What kind of book is it? Why was it written? And what is the overall theme of Hebrews? We'll address these questions quickly. So first of all, who wrote it? We don't know. We don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It is an anonymous book. It itself, it doesn't tell us. And so other than the four gospel books in the New Testament, Hebrews is the only other book of the New Testament that is anonymous. Now, according to church tradition, it was written by the Apostle Paul. And this is one of the reasons why it was accepted by the early church as scripture. But the thing is that, that Paul always identifies himself in his letters, and the vocabulary and writing style and themes in Hebrews do not seem to match up with Paul's letters. And then even in, in Hebrews chapter 2, we'll look at this next week briefly, but it even seems to say that, that the writer of Hebrews is part of the second generation of hearing the gospel. 
So it was probably not Paul who wrote this book. And so as we go through this, I will simply say, Hebrews says this, or Hebrews says that. And over the years, there have been many guesses as to who the author is. This book is written to Jewish Christians, primarily. It uses Jewish themes, and it digs very deeply into the Old Testament. And at the end of Hebrews, we have a little clue, because the author makes reference to Timothy. And this, so this would indicate that the author was part of Paul's circle of companions and co-workers. So, therefore, we can say a few things about the author. He was Jewish. He was highly intelligent and a powerful orator. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. And he was a co-laborer of Paul in the gospel. It was Martin Luther who suggested that the author of Hebrews was Apollos, the Jew from Alexandria who powerfully argued with the Jews concerning Christ, but he also needed some further teaching from Aquila and Priscilla. And I think personally that out of all the possible candidates, Apollos is probably the best fit as the author of Hebrews, but we will not know this for sure, this side of heaven. And there are those, they are in the minority, but there are those who do believe that it was written by the Apostle Paul, and that is still a possibility as well. So the second question is, what kind of book is Hebrews? Well, Hebrews is actually a unique book, because it, it seems to be a letter, but it does not have all of the features that a normal letter does. At the end, the ending is like a letter, but it does not open like a letter. It doesn't have the opening greetings that a letter should have. And it does not refer to specific recipients throughout the letter. So what most scholars think, that, that Hebrews, instead of a letter, what it seems to be actually is a sermon. A very lengthy sermon. And so originally, Hebrews was probably preached instead of written. And maybe a scribe wrote down the words of the sermon. And then maybe they decided to convert it into a letter in order to instruct an even wider audience by sending it far and wide. But just like a sermon, in Hebrews the points flow together seamlessly, coming together to present Jesus Christ in all his wondrous glory. The third question, why was Hebrews written? We could say, why was Hebrews preached? Well, Hebrews was written primarily to Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians are going through a really hard time. They're being persecuted for their faith. Their homes are being taken away from them. They're being ridiculed. Other Jews are telling them what a big mistake they've made. That they should come back to Judaism and give up all this Christianity nonsense. And so Hebrews is being preached to Jews who are, are weary and they're tired and they're downtrodden. And some of them maybe are having some doubts and they're tempted to go back to Judaism Life would certainly be a lot easier if they did that. Maybe their families would accept them again. 
They had such excitement when they first came to Christ, but now things have gotten so hard. And Hebrews is being preached to say, no, you've forgotten who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Jesus is not some exalted angel. He's not some prophet. He's not on the same level as Moses. Jesus is the very son of God. He is supreme. There's no one higher, no one greater. He is the be-all, end-all. He is worth giving up your house for, giving up your life for, giving up everything for. And it's that message, that very message that is refreshment for the weary soul. It is that message that is an encouragement for the saddened heart. And it's that message that puts an end to every doubt. And it's the very same message that has just as much relevance for us in the early days of 2019. We need to hear that message too. The fourth question, what is the overall theme of Hebrews? Well, I'll just give one sentence. The overall theme of Hebrews is the perfect Son of God is a perfect high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice. I'll say that again. The perfect Son of God is a perfect high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice. We're going to begin to unpack that theme as we go through the book of Hebrews. So let us begin our climb of Mount Hebrews by getting into the text this morning as we surrender ourselves to the Word of God. But before we begin, however, first we must understand that there are two ways to compare things. There are two ways to compare things. First of all, we can compare two things to each other in terms of degrees. For example, I think that chocolate ice cream is tastier than strawberry ice cream. By how many degrees? I don't know, at least a couple of degrees. They're on the same level, it's both ice cream, but I personally like one more than the other. That's comparing two things by degrees. Or here's another example. Wayne Gretzky was the greatest hockey player ever. In skill and talent, he was head and shoulders above almost all other hockey players of his day. He still has many unbroken records that may never be broken. He was way better by many degrees. So that's the one way of comparing two things, by degrees. Think of Moses. Moses was the greatest prophet among all the prophets. Michael is the archangel, the greatest angel among all the angels. David was the greatest king among all the kings of Israel. When we compare by degrees, greater than or less than. So that's the one way of comparing two things. The other way of comparing two things is by category. When we say that something is categorically superior, 
or better than something else, we mean that it's not even in the same league as the other thing. It's in a whole other category. So, for example, if you compare a little ant with a human being, there's no comparison there. Humans are categorically superior to ants. They're not even in the same, um, the same category. So again, in comparison to me and my hockey skill, Wayne Gretzky is categorically superior. I can barely skate. <laughs> Another example is, is all of us might remember at one point when we were single, and we saw an attractive person, we might be thinking, maybe I'll ask her out on a date, or him. But then a friend comes along, puts their arm around and says, nah, man, she's out of your league. <laughs> right? There's, there's a lot of laughter going on there, because we know. <laughs> that is a categorical comparison. Your friend is saying, don't even bother. You're not even in the same category as that other person. And so why am I beginning with this? Why is this important to understand as we begin the book of Hebrews? Well, it's because Hebrews begins the first three chapters by making three comparisons. He compares Jesus with the prophets, verses 1 and 2, and then with the angels, he spends two chapters on that comparison. And then in chapter 3, he talks about Jesus in comparison to Moses. The prophets, the angels, and Moses. This is how Hebrews begins. But, but Hebrews is not comparing Jesus with the prophets, angels, and Moses in terms of degree, as if he is on the same spectrum as they are, but he's simply greater or better. No. What Hebrews is doing is he's making a categorical comparison. Jesus is so superior to the prophets, the angels, and Moses, that he is in an entirely different category altogether. Jesus is completely out of their leagues. He is in a league all his own. So the book of Hebrews opens in verses 1 and 2a, by comparing the prophets with Jesus. Let's read that together. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's think about that comparison being made there. So God may have spoken to the patriarchs via prophets in the past, but now God has spoken to us through his son. And let's think about that for a moment. What is a prophet anyway? Well, a prophet is a servant proclaiming the message of the king. But a son is an entirely different category. A son is not a servant, but rather part of the family. And when the son speaks, it is as if the king himself is speaking. And so this is Hebrews' way of saying, listen up, pay attention. The word of God delivered by the prophets is binding. But how much more binding 
then is the word coming directly from the Son. So that is the comparison between the prophets and the Son, who is categorically superior to all the prophets. And therefore, what he says, his word, is also categorically superior to that of the prophets, because they are servants, while he belongs to the royal family itself. But then, who? just who is this son? Is he an exalted being, like one of the angels? Well, now Hebrews is going to take both chapter 1 and chapter 2 to show how the son is categorically different from the angelic beings. In chapter 1, he's going to show how the Son is deity, categorically superior to the angels. In chapter 2, he's going to go the other direction. He is going to show how the Son is human, also categorically different from the angels. Therefore, in chapter 1 that we're going to look to today, as to his deity, the Son is higher than the angels as the heavens are above the earth. And in chapter 2, as to his humanity, again, the Son is also completely unlike the angels. And so this morning, we're going to look at the deity of the Son in chapter 1, and next week we're going to look at chapter 2, where we will see the humanity of the Son, and why it was absolutely necessary for the Son to become a human being. In Hebrews chapter 1, the emphasis is on the deity of the Son. The Son of God is God the Son. So Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So two statements are being made here about the Son. The first one points to the end of time. The second one points to the beginning of time. So this is like saying that the Son is the beginning and the end. Or how the book of Revelation puts it, He is the Alpha and the Omega. And let's think about this for a moment. Can an angel create things? How about an archangel? Could he create the world? Could maybe a super angel create something out of nothing? No, of course not. Only God can do that. Why? Because angels, no matter how great or exalted they may be, they are still, at the end of the day, when all the dust settles, they are still created beings. They're still creations. Because they are created themselves, they cannot create the world or any part of it. But the Son is not a created being. He is not part of creation. He is the one through whom God the Father created the universe out of nothing. And if the Son shares the role of creation with the Father, then the Son also shares in the deity of the Father. Let's look at verse 3. The first half, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this verse confirms the divine nature of the sun. When it says that the sun is the radiance or the aura 
of God's glory, it means that he is intimately connected with God's own glorious being. Because radiance cannot be separated from glory. But radiance is actually the part that you can see. It's what makes the glory glorious. It's like light rays from the sun that blind you with their glory. And so Hebrews here is basically saying what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. That the sun is the image of the invisible God. God the Father is invisible, whom no one has ever seen. That's what John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God. And yet, God the Son is the visible image of God that we get to see. He is the radiance of, of the Father's glory. The second part of the sentence says that the Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. This is saying that the Son shares in the Father's nature. They go together like a hand in a glove. And if we still had any doubt that the Son is God, the next phrase says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So the Son is the beginning, and He's the end. And now we see that He's everything in between as well. For He maintains and sustains and upholds reality by His divine command. And in this church, we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God the Father. Well, this verse is talking about the sovereignty of God the Son. Everything belongs to Him. Beginning, middle, and end. He created the universe. He upholds the universe. And the universe is his inheritance. The Son is definitely not an angel. He is very God of God and very light of light. Look with me at verse 3b. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So verse 3b refers to the incarnation of the Son and what he accomplished as the God-man. He made purification for sins by dying on the cross. And then he sat down because the work was finished. He sat in the place of the highest possible honor, at the right hand of the majesty on high. But then in verse 4, it may raise a question in our minds. How did the Son become superior to the angels? If he was God, he was already superior to the angels, wasn't he? So what's going on here? Why does he say he became superior to the angels? Well, the answer, I think, lies in the incarnation. In his utter condescension to become a human being, the Son humbled himself to become lower than the angels in joining humanity to himself. And so as the God-man, in a certain sense, he was for a time inferior to the angels. Not inferior with his deity, but inferior with his humanity. But then, by his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God. He became superior to the angels as both God and man. So that now his, his humanity too 
is exalted far above the angels. Before the incarnation, the Son was categorically superior to the angels. And now, after the incarnation, the God-man is also categorically superior to the angels. Now, at this point, Hebrews could have ended right there. His point has been made. Now he can move on to other things. But Hebrews isn't finished yet. He's going to press the point even further. He is going to make absolutely sure that we understand that the Son is divine, and that he is superior to all the angels. And Hebrews does this by taking us to the Old Testament. Hebrews is not merely going to tell us that the Son is superior. He is going to show us from Scripture that the Son is superior. And so in the rest of chapter 1, Hebrews points us to seven verses taken from the Old Testament. And one of these seven verses is about angels. And the other six are all about the Son. And all but one of these verses is taken from the book of Psalms. And over and over again, Hebrews is drawing out the contrast between the angels and the Son. So in verse 6, look with me at verse 6. It says, the angels are to worship the Son. But, but only God is to be worshipped. The angels cannot worship another angel. No, they must worship someone who is categorically superior to themselves. Then in verse 7, we learn what angels actually are. It says they are ministers, servants. And verse 14, if you jump down there, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And even the word angel, what does it mean? The, angel, the word angel itself simply means messenger. A messenger is not part of the family. A messenger is a servant, an underling, a minion, a subordinate, an attendant. In contrast, a son is part of the family, heir to the father's estate. So that's, what, that's who angels are. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to to who the Son is. And what is so beautiful, I find, about these quotations from the Old Testament concerning the Son, is that all of them can be connected back with each phrase in verses 2 to 5 that we looked at. So this is where you're going to have to concentrate with me a little bit. We can go through this quickly. But I just want to show you the connection, just quickly, between everything that Hebrews said in verses 2 to 5, da, 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 and how they connect with the, the Bible verses that he quotes from the Old Testament. So look quickly at verse 2a again. Verse 2a says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So where does Hebrews get the idea that he is the Son? Well, verse 5. He's quoting here Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So that's where Hebrews gets this idea, that he is a son. So let's go to verse 2b. Here's the second phrase. Whom he appointed the heir 
of all things. Well, where does he get that idea from? Well, I think he gets it from verse 6. Verse 6 is quoting from Psalm 97. He says, let all God's angels worship him. If all the angels need to worship the Son, that means all creation worships the Son. Therefore, all of creation belongs to the Son, and he is the heir of all things. So then verse 2c, this is the third phrase. It says, through whom he also created the world. Well, where does he get that idea from? We'll jump down to verse 10. Verse 10. Here is Psalm 102 he's quoting from. It says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So that's where Hebrews gets the idea that the Son is the creator. Then go back to verse 3a. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Well, where does he get that idea from? Well, that one's a little harder to see, but probably he's getting that, pulling that again from the idea of sonship from verse 5. That these, these Old Testament passages that address him as the son means that like a son to a father, he shares in the same spiritual essence or being as the father. And two more here, verse 3b. Verse 3b it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, where does he get that from? Well, I think he gets that from verse 8, which is quoting from Psalm 45, when he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is showing how the Son is upholding all things by his power. That he be called God, and he sits on an eternal throne. And finally, verse 3c, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, where is he getting that from? Well, he's getting that from verse 13, clearly, where it says, He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I know we went through that very quickly, and that might have been a little complicated jumping back and forth. But that's why I invite you to study this on your own throughout this week to see how each of the verses that Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament is actually supporting what he had said at the very beginning of the chapter. As we draw this sermon to a close, the final thing that I want to direct our attention to in this incredible chapter is verses 10 to 12. Look with me there. This is a quote from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. I'll just read it again. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Hebrews is applying this passage to the Son, to Jesus Christ. And by doing this, by applying this passage to the Son, Hebrews is saying that the Son is the creator of heaven and earth. That the Son is unchanging. That the Son is eternal. But even more than this, what is astounding here is that in the New Testament, 
when an author is quoting back to the Old Testament, and if in that quote we see the word Lord there, then from the Old Testament it should be Lord in all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because usually, from the Old Testament, it is referring to the divine name of Yahweh, or Jehovah. And here, this is an Old Testament quote. Therefore, when Hebrews uses the word Lord here, in our Bibles it's all in small letters. But it's actually, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I would recommend that you capitalize all those letters. It's capital L-O-R-D. Because this is actually taking the place of Yahweh. And here he is applying this to the Son. Hebrews is addressing the Son as Jehovah by using the word Lord here. He's calling him Yahweh. He's addressing him with the name of God. And what is truly special about this particular quotation from Psalm 102 is that if you go home and read through this psalm, Psalm 102, all of it is clearly talking about God. All the other passages that are quoted here are clearly messianic. You read them through and you can see what's going on. All the other quotes, it's talking about the Messiah, God's chosen king. But Psalm 102 seems different. It doesn't seem to talk about or mention the, the Messiah in any way. It's talking about Yahweh, God, all the way through. I recommend that you go and read it yourself sometime this week. And here we see Hebrews taking Psalm 102, which is only talking about God, and he applies it to the Son. And he calls the Son Lord in all caps. Yahweh. Jehovah. This is who the Son is. He is no angel. He is categorically superior to all the angels because he himself is God. He is the beginning and the end. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of reality. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is the one before whom all the angels fall flat on their faces in worship. He has made purification for sin. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, while the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And as we close this morning, let's take a quick moment to think about application. How does the deity of the Son matter to me in my everyday life? It's important so that I have a correct theological understanding of the Trinity, yes. But how, does, how can this help me when I'm feeling worn out or downtrodden or lonely or overwhelmed or having doubts even? Well, just remember that these were precisely the same kind of people that Hebrews was preaching to. And this is how he opens his sermon. He opens his sermon by talking about the majesty and the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And I think this teaches us that hope for the weary soul begins with turning our eyes upon Jesus. Taking our eyes off our problems and hardships and difficulties to focus upon our sovereign Lord, who is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is the one worth living for. And so often, one of the main reasons we get discouraged in our Christian walk is because we have lost sight of the Son of God. And we have momentarily forgotten the promise of the gospel. But when we wrap ourselves in the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and when we focus ourselves on the power of the gospel, all of these discouragements can be eclipsed. And so, towards the end of the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 12, verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Father God, as we stand at the beginning of this new year, maybe we have made many resolutions, maybe we've made none. But Father, let this be a year where we focus and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Because only that can truly carry us through. Only that can can truly give us the comfort and peace and joy that comes from your hand. Knowing who Jesus is. Knowing who the Son is whom we serve and love. And have dedicated our lives to. Father, so often when we feel weary or down or, or lost. It is because we have lost sight of you. We've lost sight of the glory of the Son. And so Father, I even pray that Hebrews chapter 1 would become a special chapter to each of us. That when we need to be to be filled with joy and comfort and peace, we can go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and say, this is the Lord that I serve. This is the Lord that I cling to. He is my refuge and my strength. Because he is unchanging and eternal. He is the one who created me. He is the one who whom I worship. He is the Son whose word is worth everything. Truly, He is worth living for. He is worth dying for. He is worth everything that I possibly have. Father, give us that kind of love for the Lord Jesus this coming year. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.